You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. This is um, Iona Italia, and I'm here with my co-host, Helen Pluckrose. Hello. Uh, say hello, Helen. <laughs> hello. Um, and I'm coming to you today from Bombay, where it's a beautiful sunny day, 27 Celsius, um, a beautiful sunny way too early in the morning. And our guest today is uh, Sarah Hader. Hi, everyone. And uh, Sarah um, is the head of the ex-Muslims of North America, and she is uh, a writer an activist, and a very strong, clear, and humane commentator um, on uh, issues primarily to do with uh, atheism, Islam, and in particular to do with the movement to leave Islam and the plight of ex-Muslims. And Sarah, I've been instructed to say that you have many fans here in India, (laughs) <laughs> That's great to hear. So um, I think I'd like to begin by asking you, um, Sarah, about something that you wrote which intrigued me. I've come to despise the term community when it refers to interest groups, particularly racial, but even ideological. Is there an atheist community? I sure hope not. To clarify, it is the community, singular, that I have an issue with. Um, could you tell me more about why you dislike that that term community um, and, yes, what you think the problems are with this concept? Well, I think, um, yeah, it's one of those things like you have to be careful when you tweet <laughs> before having really <laughs> sat on an issue because um, t- as a response to that tweet, there were quite a few people who were um, unhappy with what I had to say there. And then it occurred to me that, this is one of those things because it's it doesn't seem like a controversial for, thing for me to say, but it turned out to be controversial um, when I when I tweeted it out. Um, so perhaps it would have been better to write something at length about it. Um, but generally speaking, um, I think the word community has expanded in definition to be something that in the very best of times is kind of useless and it doesn't really mean anything. It just means an interest group or a group of people. And at worst, I think it can actually be detrimental to discourse. Um, I mean, commonly it's, it's pretty common now to say the atheist community, the black community, the South, uh, South Asian community, the immigrant community. Uh, But the word community doesn't really mean um, what, uh, what, I think would be useful for the word community to me, which is to say um, something more than just uh, a group, uh, something that's elevated beyond uh, a group or something, uh, or you know, a, a group where people just happen to share one or two um, 
qualities. When I think of a community, I think I, I think of people who really share a real connection. Um, you know, a connection that requires care, requires support, requires responsibility towards each other, towards the well-being of each other. Um, but I, I, I've seen it used in a very, very general way to just refer to a group, um, a group that doesn't really have that sort of responsibility towards each other or don't behave as if they do. So that the atheist community, that is to say the umbrella overarching, you know, everybody who calls themselves an atheist and participate somewhat online. That community, if it is a community, it is a shockingly toxic community. And in fact, it's better not to be a part of that community than it is to be a part of it. However, there are um, atheist communities, that is to say smaller smaller groups of atheists who come together in different forms, and they actually do know each other um, and care for each other as individuals, as people, um, and have this responsibility and duty towards each other. And that's what I think of when I think of a community. And mm. I think the word is just diluted um, and it's used in common discourse, uh, I think, in a way for a small number of people to to gain power over a larger group of people, which is to say, I'm sure you guys have heard... Um, People say, you know, as a member of such and such community, you know, as, as, as a part of the South Asian community, I think blah, blah, blah. Um, and to me, this is a way for one individual to sort of prop themselves up as an unelected representative of a much larger group, you know, who didn't, who didn't uh, truly unelected, who might not be okay with this person representing them in any way. And this is very common in racial communities. I think mm. this is very harmful. Mm. And I've also I, seen I agree. it... I've and I've also seen it. Um, this is primarily online on on Twitter, um, but I've seen it in other places as well, where it's used by a small group of people to indirectly implicate a large group of some sort of bad behavior without having to actually substantiate this bad behavior beyond personal experience. Um, and by that, I mean. You know, when somebody says, you know, the X community has a serious problem with, you know, Y. Um, and that could be, and you can you just replace it with anything. You could say the gamer community has a problem with feminism and I think or sexism. And I think that was going on with Gamergate many years ago. I didn't participate, didn't know about that until recently. Um, but you'll see this with the atheist community has a problem, serious problem with whatever, racism, bigotry, what, what have you. Um, and it's taken to mean that everyone who belongs to this larger group is a, you know, sexist or racist or bigot or whatever, whatever it is that they're accused of being. And all of the people in this larger group uh, begin to be treated as with, with hostility or, or, or as if they have this shadow on top of them, unless they r loudly repudiate their community <laughs> and say, well, I'm a part, I'm an atheist, but I see the sexism in the atheist community and I think it's awful. <laughs> mm. um, and that there's a performative aspect to that that I just don't find helpful at all. Right. I, I agree. I have a real problem with self-appointed spokespeople. <laughs> and very often they are, um, by nature, that they are very often the people with the most extreme opinions. <laughs> it's rather like a, I feel like it's like a giant radio talk show um, I don't know if you, Sarah, are old enough to remember radio call-in talk shows. Uh, 
people who used to call in and ask questions were always, always had the most bizarre and extreme opinions. And I, I realized later that it's because people who have more moderate opinions are much more liable to keep quiet. It's people who feel very strongly about an issue who will want to voice it. And very often, feeling very passionately about an issue goes along with having quite an, having an outlier position. I mean, that can be a good thing. An outlier position can be a very valid position. Being at one extreme does not necessarily mean that you are wrong, for example. So Majid Nawaz is extremely liberal as a Muslim, uh, for example, and uh, I, I completely support that. So he's at one extreme of uh, people practicing Islam, mm. let's say, and that's fine. And uh, you and I are, are, are free speech absolutists, as, as we've often been uh, accused of extremism, but um, there, there really isn't a scale of this. Um, as soon as you moderate free speech, it, it doesn't exist anymore. So I think that's uh, another um, sort of example of, of how the, a very sort of strong view can be quite supportable. Uh, yes, I'm, I embrace the term. I call myself a free speech extremist now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you, so you, I think you can get very quickly this distorted view of the community. And it's a way for people to ride their personal hobby horse. I think that would perhaps, you know, collective be, um, a, a better word for, for what people are trying to convey when they say this because I, I like what Sarah said and I, I agree that the whole idea of a community is 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 communing with each other it it is yeah it's cooperating it it is um being involved with each other whereas the whole idea of uh, the African-American community or the atheist community or the Muslim community tends to be yeah, much more of the idea of a a collective it's it's being bordered bordered in and um, often yeah it includes people who have very very different ideas particularly when it is a community that is based on something as unassociated with ideas as skin color or something like that so we've got this this idea this collectivism is kind of sneaking in on us from both the right mm -hmm. and the left mm -hmm. at the moment and there's, it's comforting, right? It's a comforting word. It's fuzzy. <laughs> it's it, it feels good to say and to say that you are part of a community. But I think we're fooling ourselves. And you're right that it's it's it is a kind of collectivism that's creeping into discourse where it really doesn't belong and shouldn't mm -hmm. be there. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think particularly with the whole idea of the the atheist community that the split between those who are sort of primarily motivated by epistemology what is true and how we know what is true and those who are primarily uh, motivated by the sort of moral um, aspects it has, has just been growing wider and wider until we have such uh, politically and ethically variant um, atheists who of course are only defined by their shared disbelief in a deity that it, it makes so little sense to speak of an atheist community now that I, I, I find, as, as Sarah said, that it, it often is used as a way to, um, to, to, to spread collective blame. You know, this person said this and he's one of your leaders 
and therefore, <laughs> you know, therefore all of the atheist community has a problem with whatever that one person right. that are Not even one of your leaders, just one of your lot. <sighs> you know, and I, I even, I don't, I'm not even an atheist, and I get lumped into this actually. Um, uh, you know, I get, I get people actually saying to me, "I'm kind of atheist adjacent, apparently." <laughs> Um, uh, because I have a lot of, you know, I have, I'm, I'm a very ferocious secularist and I have a lot of support for, um, people's rights to believe or disbelieve. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and so even I get one of your lot, uh, said or did this, uh, how do you explain this? How do you justify this? Right. And, and um, you have no, I mean, you have no <laughs> responsibility, um, when it comes to the actions of others, because we actually are not a collective. No. I mean, I, I think sometimes when, you know, pe people are talking about get your own house in order, and I'm told this a lot about race. I'm, I'm supposed to um, sort out all white people, apparently, or I'm more commonly, I'm one of the, the white people who needs to be sorted out. But I think when it comes down to somewhere, somewhere I, I think that that does have some validity is when it comes to politics. I do think those of us on the left have a responsibility to fix the left because we have, I do actually have a plan. We do have an agenda. We want to get people to vote for us. We want to enact policies. I don't think that that means um, any leftist individual should be responsible for the view of any other leftist individual. But that at least does make some sense in saying, this is your house, you need to get it in order. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But by but you get it in order not by being, in a sense, responsible for something someone else has said on the left, but by um, modelling uh, good sense, liberal values uh, yourself when you speak and write. Mm-hmm. And engaging with, I think, more toxic elements of your own party um, mm -hmm. or of your own tribe, as you know, uh, the, the, which is what I try to do with the left, and I've been trying to do for several years. Um, and as a response, um, many people think that the reason that I'm engaging the left so much with its own problems and trying to trying to patch it up a little bit must be due to some uh, deep. Uh, deep appreciation of the right um, or, you know, identification with the right that I'm just not fessing up to in public um, for some sort of gain that I don't really understand. But I see it as cleaning up house because I've seen the left spiral downwards um, become just this monster at times and behave like a monster at times. Um, and it's awful to see and heartbreaking to see. Yeah, I, th I, th I think we're all very much, um, all three of us are, are in that kind of position. That was my most recent essay, um, was, yeah, no, lef uh, liberal lefties are not right-wing, because this accusation of secret sympathies for the right, if you are trying to work on your own party, your own group's principles, is really very strong at the moment. And this is what I'm, I'm meaning about the, the idea that this sort of collectivism that is is just growing really strongly now that you have to pick a team and then you have to uh, stick by it in, in solidarity and, and attack the other teams is, is really quite an anathema to the whole sort of liberal principle of, of debate and progress. Yeah, I feel very strongly that 
I mean, I think the problems are much greater on the right, at least, um, well, yes, uh, on the American right. And, and uh, here in India, I feel that the um, we can just uh, go ahead and call them the far right. But I don't want to get into Indian politics too much in this episode. Um, that will be coming in future episodes. But um, I think that I would like to see the right reformed by more moderate, right-leaning voices, more centrist voices on the right, people with whom I disagree, but I'm not um, I am not afraid or um, <clears throat> concerned about those people being in power. Mm. I would like the David Frums of the world to to grow in strength. You know, I would like to see the right become a more moderate political force. And I feel as though only people from within the right can really affect that change. Only conservatives can reform conservatism. And I will continue to disagree with them, um, but I would be very happy to see that change happen. But it doesn't make sense for me to try to affect that because I don't share those values. Mm. So I can't speak from that position. Yeah. I'd like to, Sarah, you said that the community... Uh, so you said that the if there is an atheist community, it's a very toxic, it's a highly toxic community. And I'm really interested to hear more about um, why you said that. Well, I, I do think, and I'll, I'll repeat that, I do think that there are communities, plural, um, mm-hmm. smaller communities of atheists um, who came together because of this atheism or some um, shared beliefs about religion. Um, or their lack of it. And I think that those uh, groups really do um, exemplify what I think we should mean by the word community. And of course, we don't mean that right now. I think it's a much broader term, a much uh, less useful term as we use it now. But to to in the way that I wish it would be used, which is that people have responsibility towards each other, who care each other for each other, who support each other, I think that requires a degree of uh, of humanity and a degree of familiarity with each other as individuals that is not mm. possible with a much larger group uh, in the same sense. Um, and when it comes to atheists, um, I think what Helen was referencing earlier, which is that there's there are deep divides in, among atheists. And I've been sort of looking as kind of a just, just um, a lurker and getting an idea of of the way that some of these atheists treat each other. And it really is, in my opinion, um, inhumane. Um, it's, it's almost as if there is um, no um, agreement that we, that we are all human beings, that we might disagree on this point or two, um, but, but we should try and converse with each other um, and be as charitable to each other as possible. I think that idea is lost. Um, the broader atheism community, if it, if such a thing exists, um, and which would I think disqualify it from being a community. Mm. I, th- I think, yeah, more and more, I, th- I think we are seeing that people who take on atheist as a primary identity are quite sort of ideologically motivated and, yeah, that there are that because of that so strong um, divide, it it really can get quite quite harsh and quite nasty. Whereas the whole sort of um, secularist, humanist, sort of liberal, sort of pulling together 
for certain causes of um of of um challenging religious privilege um lgbt rights women's rights is a much more much more positive thing but i'm i'm thinking now with with sarah talking about this community of individuals who know each other this sounds much more like the um the psychological sort of moral community that um, well, James Lindsay wrote about in his book, Everybody is Wrong About God, in which we form a sort of small, not, not well, not always that small, but get sort of collectives of, of 20, 30, 5, 10 people who share certain values and are very supportive of each other. Maybe this, in this sense, this is, this is all, all a community can really mean, but as it sort of expands outwards, uh, when we're we're talking about common goals, I don't know. Is there a is there is there a sense? Is there a useful sense of of community? Then I feel like there used to be, when in the days of of, of liberal feminism, when we could disagree on quite a lot, but we shared common goals of um, equal access for women to various things, equal uh, reproductive freedom. Um, a sort of disagreement with any kind of um, sexist ideas of modesty or or uh, traditional roles. There felt like there was a sisterhood, a community of people who didn't necessarily have to know each other, who could accept certain differences, but could still pull together. Do you do you think do you think there could be a community in that sense, or, or have we lost that? I think we've definitely wandered away from it. Um, especially since this last election. And um, what I mean by this is even if you can get people to agree that, um, and I'll use the the example closest to me, that um, uh, if we can get people to agree that um, we should um, not accommodate, um, we should not provide religions with um, accommodations beyond um, you know, the kinds of rights and liberties everybody gets. So if, if you know, uh, and there's quite a bit of this in the United States, maybe not so much anywhere else. Um, uh, but now I feel like even if you could get people to agree on such a principle, uh, you'll have disagreements with people saying, well, now is not the time to talk about it. Um, that we should put such and such value um, or um, this principle that we might all agree with um, on the back seat because the political atmosphere is not ready for it, that we have a bigger enemy that we need to take down and this is a distraction. Mm. And I've seen, I've seen that sort of um, uh, discourse kind of um, confuse uh, the the coming together of atheists um, if we were able to come together in any way. And it certainly happens when it comes to Islam to the extent that we can't move forward because even people who do agree, we all agree, say now's not the time. Um, I have mm. to say just um, uh, that here from my, here in India, um, I do have a kind of more of a sense of uh, community among atheists. So when somebody tells me they are an atheist here, um, even though I am, um, I I don't uh, use that term um, because I um, I practice a religion. But um, when someone tells me here that they are an atheist, uh, I feel I breathe a kind of sigh of relief uh, because <laughs> here it's uh, it's a position which is intellectually honest, 
um, courageous, and uh, it usually implies a sort of commitment to um, egalitarianism and to a kind of universal humanism um, rather than sect a sort of sectarian belongingness because here religion is part of your identity and you can actually tell by looking at people and you can certainly tell as soon as you hear their name um, you can you can very frequently tell immediately whether they're Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, or whatever. You know, many people wear religious garb. Uh, many people's houses have religious symbols. So if you arrived here, you can see looking at the door of our house, you can tell from my surname and you can see immediately looking at the door of the house that this is a, a Parsi house. Um, and we have, you know, Zoroastrian symbols everywhere. And that's, that's the norm in India. Um, and I feel as though um, when people say they're atheists, they're almost always left-wing because the right <sighs> is very concerned with religious identity, with promoting this sort of Hindu nationalism. And they are almost always progressive, broad-minded. So, you know, when I hear that, I know these are going to be like-minded people. Yeah, so it seems that there are sort of consistently some connotations with atheists, which I don't think that that we have in in America, in the US, um, in the UK at the moment. I I think it, it's um, become so such a, a mainstream, not a, not majority, but such a mainstream position that it's there are so many different sort of um, factions. That this 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 cannot be assumed now, but I I was I was interested in in what Sarah was saying then about this this idea of um, even if people agree with the principles that you're putting forward, they're saying yep, yeah, not now. Now we have to focus. Now we sort of have to to pull together for this this aim. And I, I I'm getting a, a strong sense of this as well that that the principles that's really quite simple. Principles such as not evaluating people by their race, gender, or sexuality are kind of being set aside for a sort of pragmatic goals, uh, sort of team goals. We, we we have to fight this common enemy now, so we have to kind of bend our principles a bit. It, it was that the sort of thing you were talking about, Sarah? Absolutely, absolutely. And I see there's many different forms of this kind of argument, and I've um, this, but I've seen on the whole, this desire to not just share some certain a certain group of principles and say, okay, we're all on the left, we all agree with these 10 principles, but also this desire to tell others how they must how, how they must value it and to what degree they must value any one principle and how they can how they should mentally order um, what's most important and what's least important. And I've seen echoes of this and things like um, concepts like it, uh, intersectionality, which I won't pretend to 100% understand. And that may be because I haven't read enough about it. And that also may be because it is incoherent <laughs> um, uh, um, on its own. Um, but but I found that, that it, what's what startled me about these sorts of concepts is that it's that not only must you be um, a feminist and um, a, you know, a, I, I guess, uh, environmentalist or whatever, but you also have to prioritize them in a certain group of way, and then you get this hierarchy of of 
groups we must protect, of, of whose rights we must protect before we protect the group, uh, the rights of other groups. And you're stuck in this kind of weird um, crossroads. And it comes uh, in, in my case uh, with Islam, it's pretty clear that there is um, a conflict between what people like me, how people like me might be feeling in terms of uh, being uh, at a, being targeted because of our race. Um, or in my case, I'm also an immigrant. Um, I wasn't born in this country. I, I'm a naturalized citizen. Um, uh, and then in addition to that, the fact that I am a critic of Islam. I'm um, a vo- very vocal of critic of Islam. But I feel increasingly that I am told in what order I should place those two different identities and their needs. Uh, this is troubling to me. I, I would like to just... Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, I would uh, I would like to just segue a little bit into um, the leftist discourse on Islam, uh, because I think this fits in with what we were um, a little bit with what we were talking about before. People um, are suggesting that on the left we shouldn't criticize the left because we need to band together um, at this moment to to fight uh, the right, Trump. Um, the rise of the far right, etc. And uh, therefore, we need to sort of hide our dirty laundry out of sight. And uh, we need to, I, I guess, ignore or gloss over uh, or even outright lie about um, problems within our own group. And I think that there is a parallel with um the ways in which progressives, uh, progressives, sorry, the ways in which leftists are talking about uh, Islam. And I'd like to just read a couple of quotations of yours, Sarah. Sarah, you talk about um, the left glossing over problems within Islam um, because of fears that Muslims as a group are being targeted um, and because of fears of rising anti-Muslim bigotry, uh, people on the left don't want to talk about problems within the religion and the religious teachings because they are afraid that this will lead to more hostility towards Muslims as a group. And um, that in some cases there is uh, naivety about what the religion actually contains. And at first you believe that uh, when people were... um, Making statements that seem to um, that seem to paint a, a, a very um, unrealistically rosy view of Islam and its teachings, and um, I will go ahead actually and just say that I absolutely hate uh, traditional Islam. Um, I think it's a deeply misogynistic, homophobic, xenophobic, and life-denying religion in its traditional form. And I have read the Quran and the Hadiths. Um, so that's my, an informed opinion. And it's, it's early medieval, yes, isn't it? It's, yes. um, yeah, it's, it's not going to be yes. enlightened. I mean, it's not uniquely <laughs> so, but at the moment, it's globally, I would say that among, uh, religions that are influencing, uh, extremist and retrograde and reactionary regressive thought, uh, Islam is the number one globally, the number one problem. Uh, here in India, no. Here, here in India, Hindu extremism is a greater threat. But globally, um, 
this kind of uh, the the problem is with the influence of these kinds of teachings from Islam. And Sarah, you said that you felt that at first you wondered whether people just didn't know, um, and you thought that you could just clarify and enlighten them. And then you realized that actually they did know, but they felt it was better to um, omit or even lie um, because they felt that the effect of speaking the truth would be to direct prejudice towards Muslims. And you talk particularly about um, Obama after 9-11, I think, saying that Islam was a religion of peace. And uh, I'm just going to quote you here. The bulk of my incredulity wasn't in reaction to Obama's statement itself, which has become a mantra of sorts. I just didn't think that Obama himself believed what he said. I do think that he, Hmm. like many educated, compassionate liberals, believes that it is important to say the words, to pay lip service to the idea, even if it isn't exactly true. They believe that there is great harm in using language that implicates the entirety of the religion. That is, as Hillary Clinton put it in in an interview on the Today Show on June 13th, 2016, this was after the Orlando nightclub massacre, it is just plain dangerous and it plays into ISIS's hands. In other words, the language is chosen primarily for the anticipated consequence of its usage, not its accuracy. So it's rhetoric uh, rather than rather than exploration of the truth. Um, do you want to uh, say more about that? Well, I mean, I, I think I've noticed I've noticed a, just a broader problem with insincerity in dialogue, um, and it's you know it it I think goes much be much much farther beyond Islam, um, but it's it's language as a tool to signal things to each other. Um, there's just a second secondary level of meaning that people are actually referring to. Um, and it makes um, sincere dialogue with other parties, especially other parties who might not recognize these, what you really, really mean, right? What you're trying to signal from your language. Um, and just uh, people who are just looking at your literal words, it to them, it will seem like lying. To them, it will seem like, um, you know, obfuscation. Um, and I think we saw a little bit of this with the with the Sarah Jong yes, racism yes. tweets, the racist tweets. But I noticed a similarity there with just this 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 need to state certain things and to say them out loud. And if you said, you know, white people are whatever, this allows you entrance into some sort of club. This signals certain things about you, that you're an educated person, you belong to the specific class. I don't think it actually means what they say it means. Um, And I didn't really talk openly, publicly about my feelings towards the Sarah, is that, is it Jong? I I don't know. I don't really consume any much oral uh, news media, so yeah. I've never yeah. actually heard it said Maybe. aloud. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah. I, I felt like it. She, she didn't really mean necessarily what she could said. We, uh, Maybe could she we does. recap for a second because people may not know uh, who Sarah Jong is? Um, and uh, so she was recently hired as the editor of the New York Times. 
And there was uh, something of a furore over uh, old tweets of hers spanning quite a long period, I think four to five years, uh, where she made a lot of, um, uh, on the face of it, very racist generalizations about white people. So, it's, yeah, this is interesting because this whole sort of idea of um, constructing a position through speech, which is not meant to be taken as literally true, but to signal um, a position and a set of values, which really um, requires being very, very familiar with a culture. This, there's been so much... Um, uh, sort of done on the, I, I'm I'm thinking um, uh, Lacan and, and Freud, sort of looking back at these sort of layers and levels of speech. This is obviously something that we do, but I I, I think as well that it is it, it is coming to the surface, sort of right right now. When you're you're as I, I found that very interesting. What um, what Sarah was saying, it's not it's not literally true. It's just saying I. I take this side, I hold these values. Mm-hmm. And I think there's there's something in that of the the idea w- which sort of came to us via um, postmodernism that we can construct reality with our words, with dominant discourses. And I, I wonder, Sarah, do you think that it's there's an element of thinking if we keep saying that Islam is a religion of peace, that this will will bring this about, that this will encourage it. Whereas if we say there are significant human rights issues um, within um, some elements of Islam, that by by admitting it, it, it will it will encourage it. It, it will solidify it. Do, do you think there's an there's an element of that? Absolutely. Yeah. I think I think, but but I don't think that's the primary reason that anybody goes about engaging in that kind of dialogue. I do think that that is part of it, definitely, um, which, you know, there, there's an, there's an, a misunderstanding of how we evolve as, as moral beings, um, about how we come to accept new ideas. Um, and it, it's that misunderstanding that I think leads one to say that if I just repeat something enough times, Muslims will just come to believe it and understand their religion as, okay, well, this person keeps saying Islam is for women's rights, so it must be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then becoming more progressive in this sort of upside down um, way. But I think but for, while, while you're right, absolutely, Helen, that that's, there's an aspect of that, um, which is, uh, you know, sh- shockingly narrow minded in, in my, in my view, that the, the, but the vast majority of people who engage in that kind of dialogue um, do it as as a performance, and I think a lot of them were when it came to the Sarah John thing, they were they were saying so. They were they were saying that this is a there's a it's performative rhetoric, <laughs> um, and they were trying to explain what was going on to outsiders. Um, but I, when I saw her tweets, I saw that as a woman who was using rhetoric to signify certain things about her class, about her station, about her education. Um, she was trying to enhance her reputation among her very small personal group. Um, and there was no, there's never an intention for outside groups to be able to comprehend it because they don't matter. It doesn't matter what conservatives will see this as uh, because we are not actually engaging with them directly at any level. And you see this 
uh, more and more with uh, liberal media outlets and conservative media outlets, are, are, there's this wider gap between them um, uh, uh, that seems like it's becoming impossible to to bridge, but not only, but language is just, they've sort of given up this idea that language is meant to be understood and um, it is meant to build bridges among, among people who won't automatically understand exactly what it is that you mean. Um, and in the, in the case of, of Sarah Jong, it's, it's just, isn't it, you know, just there's something grotesque about this very blatant racism to, to signal you know, in actuality, what uh, anti-racism from from their perspective? It it is very corrupted, isn't it? It's um, it, it's, it's grotesque. It's, yeah, mm. I absolutely. I mean, I I feel um, the first thing we need is a return to frankness. Um, and uh, you know, I was um, you've been writing about this also that um, um, whatever your intention is, however well-meaning. Um, if you're glossing, if you're glossing things over or you're falsifying things, um, that is never going to be a long-term, um, effective strategy. And I feel that this, um, as you say, if people are, um, I'm sorry, I'm just returning to Islam a little bit, but if people are, um, you feel that people are lying to you, uh, about the topic, then you are going to be, um, people don't like being lied to. They feel patronized. Um, and they will, they will be drawn to whoever they feel is telling the truth about the topic. Um, even if uh, along with that truth, they're also, um, you know, people on the right and even far right, um, uh, say things about, Islam, which are completely true, but then what they go on to say about what our attitudes towards Muslims should be and how we should behave as a society, uh, that's when it becomes very toxic. And that's when I completely disagree with them. You know, it's, they can't be the only ones, um, being clear and speaking truth on this particular, on this particular very narrow topic. They're using that sort of, Level the, of the illusion of exactly, plain the speaking. Illusion of plain speaking. For them, it's also rhetoric. You know, they're using that as a means of drawing people in and getting them on board with their agenda, um, mm. which is an, an you know an incredibly illiberal and inhumane agenda. Um, but uh, we can't allow them to monopolize that tool. I think we have to all return to plain speaking, frankness, um, honesty. It can't be, you know, you, you cannot base your, um, you can't base your ethics, um, on, uh, on a falsehood. Uh, it has to be, you know, you have to be, for example, you have to be committed to, um, respecting Muslims as fellow citizens, to treating uh, Muslims as fellow human beings, you must be committed to uh, a hum humanitarian attitude towards uh, immigrants and refugees. Um, you have to be committed to uh, equality and non-prejudice, no matter what is written in the Quran. That should not be. That should be irrelevant to those values. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I think what you were saying about um, the need for frankness, um, I think that can be made possible only if we understand our political opponents or anybody, intellectual opponents, anyone who disagrees with us as someone with dignity equal to ours, as someone who who has an intellect, who has the capacity to reason, and who may be uh, you know, as moral or perhaps even more morally motivated um, than than we are, um, and I think it's this kind of uh, charity, it's this this kind of dignity to to opponents, not just appointing opposing points of view, but opponents that um, too many people, particularly those on the left, are, are unable to grant. They're unable to do it. Um, there's a suspicion that we shouldn't be speaking frankly and, and with sincerity and with charity to um, people who disagree with us because ultimately they are not as um, capable of reason or they are just in a, some sort of fundamental sense immoral people. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah, this, this, this way of thinking sort of comes around to, to, um, explain a little bit of their approach to Islam. Uh, we cannot think of, like from their from their perspective, we cannot grant that there are some bad ideas that Muslims hold, because according to us, if you hold bad ideas and you hold them with, you know, you, uh, with, um, if you're steadfast to your, to your bad ideas, uh, you are a bad person. You must be. Um, and that relationship, because that just isn't that, that that chain is just so strong in the in the eyes of too many people on the left that you have to you have to then, uh, in order to protect Muslims, deny that they have bad ideas. Mm, that Yes. Oh, gosh, that that's mm, very interesting. I, I think I, I, that's just clarified quite a few things for me. I, this whole sort of we there's this idea that we've got more nuance and more complexity but it, but in fact things have really got a lot more more simple there is this this idea that if you listen to something you must support it if you um, want somebody else to speak you must agree with with what they say we, we've come back to this really quite sort of all or nothing approach and that I, I think that's um, yeah no so I'm, I'm going to give that a, that a lot more thought, Sarah. That that's um, that's really interesting. That's, that's made some things click. Mm. I mean, I feel <laughs> that we we really um, there's a tendency a, a couple of things here. Um, I mean, one is this tendency to take people's ideas as a package, um, and I find this a. a um, I notice this a lot on Twitter, but it does happen in real life too. That if I say, okay, this, this particular idea, for example, which Douglas Murray has proposed here, I find that interesting or worthwhile. Um, but I actually disagree mm. to about 80% with, um, Douglas. I'm not going to get into why in detail. Um, because it's not, it's not really relevant, actually. It's just an example. Um, and when I say, okay, this idea of his is valid, people say, well, how can you agree with that? Because look at these other things he said. But I'm not proposing mm. voting for him as, you know, I'm not proposing you vote for him for prime minister or something. I'm not looking at, um, 
I'm, I'm not deciding whether to hire him for a job or as a spokesperson or anything else. I'm just looking at the, the single idea. And generally, people have a package of different ideas and feelings. Um, and you can, if you are upset by or in strong disagreement with the ones you feel are wrong, you have to start with the ones where you agree, the ones where you feel they might be right, and you find an access point, and from there you build. Um, mm. I, I, I think that, that, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. This is a problem that we're having at the moment where we have to take people wholesale. We have to take, um, if, if they have one terrible idea, then we just have to write them off um, completely almost sort of deny their as Sarah was saying their their dignity their reason their moral motivations and this is um this this is something that that we're seeing increasingly at the moment this this sort of over simplicity so we were talking about this tendency to uh um clump Clump. exactly (laughs) And I feel that that is, um, uh, I'm just going to mention for a moment the intellectual dark web phenomenon, that there's this group of um, mm. of uh, thinkers, public intellectuals, I guess we could call them, pundits who have um, identified themselves in a, as a group. Eric Weinstein coined the term intellectual dark web. Oh. Or been identified. Or been identified. But I think, uh, didn't Eric explicitly coin that term for them? Um, And Yeah, Yeah, I I think uh, among the members of it, there are some who have um, embraced it quite enthusiastically and and others who have um, said, oh, that's that's nice, but I'm not sure. Right, (laughs) yes. Um, And I feel that that has been... uh, Eric's intention was that it would be a heterogeneous group of people with very different ideas and opinions, and what they would model would be civil discourse, how to talk to people that you disagree with. And I think that's a lovely Mm -hmm. idea, but the fact that they have given themselves this label has led to a lot of lumping. Um, Yeah, there, there are certain accompanying risks, aren't there? That um, yeah, that there, there could be guilt by association. The whole lot of um, thinkers, um, including you know some some of the the best, could um, yet yeah, be easily dismissed by one individual who has been uh, selected as you know claimed to be part of this group uh, with with terrible ideas. I, I'm, I'm always rather um, skeptical of, of movements or or collectives or or webs just just for that for that purpose for that sort of reason that we're no longer looking at individuals and then at an even more granular level the the ideas of individuals we're 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 clumping again exactly so i you know i won't go into details about individuals but i admire some members of the group uh a couple of two of them i consider to be actually personal friends and uh, then there are some that I really don't, whose ideas I find really muddled and mistaken, and uh, and who I even have and, and they're so antithetical for to yeah, each other, exactly, aren't and they? who are, and and whose ideas just <laughs> conflict with each other. And I think we need to get away from this lumping as much as possible. So not only 
not lumping as groups and communities, but not even lumping um, all an individual's views together. Um, that we need to engage with ideas one at a time and without... Um, what, uh, I mean, context is important when you're talking about the specific idea. You need to know, you need to not look at just sound bites. And I think this has also become a problem of this kind of performative rhetoric. People are... Um, are you are you know dwelling on sound bites, taking little things out of context, and getting really outraged when, if they even read the surrounding sentence, they would understand that that uh, they're misinterpreting what's been said. Um, but I also feel that um, even with people who are um, real extremists, we need to. Um, we need to separate out, we need to humanize, we need to think about why did why have they come to hold such extreme views um, and how can we untangle that? I think we need to have a lot more empathy, um, not only for, we need to have empathy for people on the far right, we need to have empathy for people who are Islamic extremists, uh, we need to have empathy with Hindu ethno-nationalists. It's very difficult um, but we need to understand and trace the ideas, I, I think, yeah. the, the genealogy of the ideas. Uh, sorry, go on, Helen. Uh, yes, yeah, so, so I think when we're talking about empathy, um, I mean, Bloom, you know, he, he separated the whole sort of cognitive empathy. I understand where you're coming from, from um, emotional empathy, I feel as you do. And I, I think you're talking here about the cognitive empathy, the, the trying to um, click into the mindset to to try and, and sort of understand where it's coming from rather than simply condemn. Is, yes, is that right? I think so. Sarah? Uh, I'm sorry, I, I guess I missed um, what does the intellectual dark web has to do with this? You think they that they do do this or don't do this? More of, more of the lumping by, by having oh, this yeah. sort of um, collective mm -hmm. that, that people are, are sort of attributing values and ideas and politics to. That's, um, yeah, they're part of the, the, the whole sort of problem of, of collectivizing and, um, and lumping, I think. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I think um, to the extent that... Um, this i this idea i haven't really remarked on it publicly too much um but i mm. i think i disagree with eric's um uh definition of it or in the sense that if if that's what the definition is if that's what he sees it as and he is somebody who's coined it then it's something maybe that i'm not 100% comfortable with which is that it is a group of people um uh i think to the extent that there is a movement of people breaking away from mainstream uh, arenas of intellectual discussion and engagement, and they're sort of hosting things on their own platforms and having these conversations that, quote unquote, you're not supposed to have and sort of breaking away from uh, from the gatekeeping of, um, of, of discourse today, I think that's interesting, right? I mean, and that's absolutely a phenomena, whether mm -hmm. that is happening and we're seeing it happen. Um, and, to, and there are certain people who absolutely exemplify it right now. 
um, or are a big part of that growing phenomena, or you can even call it a movement. Um, but I prefer to just leave it as, as this thing that is happening and it is affecting people um, at, at you know, all different stages um, of you know, fame and renown. Um, for example, there are people like uh, that who who reach out to me, who I know of, who they're not famous. Nobody knows of them. They're you know maybe academics who are toiling away somewhere, um, or they are activists who work very deeply within certain communities who um, are sort of experiencing kind of the same uh, forces that more well-known people within the you know intellectual dark web are. are are speaking about, you know, some of the same mm. pushbacks for wrong think Absolutely. Um, and uh, mobbing and um, attacks on their character and smearing. There's a lot of people who are experiencing this kind of thing. And also, you know, some of them are pushing away from it and breaking out of it and, and calling it out. And that's happening mm. everywhere. Mm. That's mm. happening everywhere where such a thing, such, such forces exist, which are truly, it's truly become something that is very per- pervasive across um across our society, particularly the more um, academic and, and, and intellectual fields. Um, so to the extent that it's a phenomena, I think it's, I absolutely agree that it exists. And I think it's interesting. It's worth discussing and talking about. I don't like talking about it as a group. I think that's just, I, I agree with what you're saying. It, there's a lot of problems to, to again, that, that clumping or flattening of people together um, mm. is it, in itself something that, just um, fr- from at the very face of it, I don't, I don't like. Um, but beyond that, I think, I think um, personally, I've been at this for a couple of years, and I've faced a lot of pushback for my views, and I've I've thought about this right from the very beginning, and I think of it even now. You know, what am I doing? I'm, um, I'm young. And I could be doing anything. And here I am doing something that is bound to follow me for the rest of my life and become, you know, and it's some sort, it's this shadow that even people that might want to work with me, if they're of the progressive, you know, bent, or maybe they just don't like ruffling feathers, they might not, you know, they might not hire me, they might not work with me, they might not engage with me because of this, um, you know, sort of this toxic air that surrounds me, whether I like it or not. Um, and you know, I've, I've, well, (laughs) I mean, I, but, but certainly my loss too, right? I mean, I think I feel, I feel there's a taint, isn't there? There is a taint and it's, and to the extent that you experience these forces that we're talking about, these kinds of smears and, um, uh, uh, you know, disparaging of your character that many people on the intellectual dark web or people who have, who consider themselves part of this, this, movement or group or whatever um to the extent that you experience this as a human being um it has um you know a a very strange effect and i've been trying i've been thinking about myself and my place in this and and trying to sit trying to see all the different ways that i could go off you know i could go off the rails or maybe lose my grounding um and try to be as principled as possible but i am human Mm-hmm. And if you're called just all day, every day, you're just, you're smeared all the time. Um, and your character is just, you know, just 
disparagements in in every way imaginable, and you're called every name in the book. Uh, I can't help but 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 be affected by that, and be hurt by that, and be be formed by that in a it, to to you know because I can't help but react to this reality that's coming my way, and maybe uh, if I'm not careful, this. Um, this forces me to be more defensive. This um, forces me to seek out um, allies wherever I can find them, even mm-hmm. if they are not perfect allies. But this, I think, this there's this explains a lot of this need for a group, a refuge. Um, among us, yeah, among us, among us, those same group of people because they have been attacked relentlessly, and now there's just this desire to have a, you know, quote unquote, safe space, right? But but uh, somebody who will have your back, because if you truly are, um, if you truly are heterodox in your ideas, you don't have a home anywhere. And if you, you know, you're politically homeless. Um, and sometimes that that reflects, that comes to permeate, you know, your, your social life as well. So you become isolated in a lot of ways and you seek this kind of group, um, a club, a, a, a you know a brotherhood who will protect you or have your back when 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 things go awry. So I think there is a danger uh, to people like uh, to people who are attacked um, uh, unfairly over long periods of time that they might be more susceptible to groupthink. Actually, yeah. <laughs> in the end, because they because once you've been. Uh, on the on on the defense for so long yeah i'm suspicious of anybody who say says they don't feel the pull of that anybody who talks about controversial issues and doesn't you know trying to remain consistent trying to uphold your integrity your principles caring about that very deeply thinking about it all the time there still is I'm suspicious of anyone who doesn't feel a pull to to join a tribe for for safety because out there, you know, in in the middle of the waters, trying to do your own thing, trying to stick to principles rather than than tribes, it, it's a very vulnerable position. Yeah, I I, mm-hmm. I, I yeah, absolutely feel yeah. that, and I am a joiner of many tribes, um, you know, and I actually I actively <laughs> enjoy placing labels on myself, uh, you know, even though people always say don't <laughs> label me, but I I you know my Twitter bio is like thirty labels. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm a secularist. That's my tribe. I'm a liberal. I'm a left winger. Um, I'm a Parsi. I'm an Argentine. You know, I have, um, I find that very comforting. And I'm a member of several really kind of uh, the Parsi community, which is very small and eccentric, and the Tango community, which is a really warm, fuzzy community. Um, and that's really comforting. But I think there's also an opposite danger, uh, which I've noticed uh, happening quite a lot, which is that um, when people uh, when people tell you that you shouldn't hold certain views because that implies that you're an evil person or that actually less views, but that there are certain topics that shouldn't be discussed um, because they imply discussing those problems is implies that you have no moral probity just discussing them or entertaining the ideas mm-hmm. um that makes people uh mm. many people uh depending on personality but a certain 
type of person is then all the more attracted uh, to those ideas and to those questions. And I feel that this is, um, I don't want to go into this because the topic actually really, really bores me as a topic, but I find it psychologically interesting that I think this is a large part of what has happened with um, people's kind of newfound fascination with uh, Charles Murray's book, The Bell Curve, and with the connection between race and IQ, which he stipulates. Exactly. Knowledge. I'm, I'm absolutely one of those people. Like, in the idea, that, in, the, in the sense that if you tell me there's a forbidden, there's something that I'm not supposed to talk about or think about, <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> where I'm going yeah, to go. That's think, where I'm going to go Don't first. think about a white bear. Um, so I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Stop thinking about the white bear. Yeah, I, I can't. Mm. I, I can't help it. I mean, and and um, you know, I I I do think, and again to go back to maybe the dangers of this um, intellectual dark web developing is that it feels like there are you know two separate rails of engagement, two separate rails of dialogue, um, and I don't think that this is a healthy thing for us or for them or for anybody, you know, for, for both sides. Um, and we need people who are able to, you know, bridge the divide and pierce these bubbles and speak to both groups because we're, I think we're seeing um, a further isolation um, that isn't healthy in society at all. And Charles Murray is a great example of a kind of knowledge that some people will discuss openly and Sam mm-hmm. Harris famously did um, yes. and he suffered quite a bit. For for, yeah. for for even bringing it up, um, and in other circles, they're they're not going to discuss yeah. it. and um, I kind well. of feel like if if there hadn't been such furore, you know, if if um, Antifa or whoever the protesters were hadn't come and broken Alison Stanger's collarbone when she was hosting Charles Murray at Middleborough, and if people hadn't got their knickers in such a huge twist over Sam's podcast, um people wouldn't be talking about this that much. It's, I feel like it's a topic of, um, I mean, I feel everything should be researched and discussed uh, quite freely. And, you know, researching it might lead to some interesting breakthroughs um, to do with IQ in general. But other than that, if you're not a neurologist, it's not a topic of great, I don't feel it's a topic of much intrinsic interest, to be frank. I feel the interest was generated by making it taboo. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even within the discussion, you know, the the the, the findings were there's so much variation um, within a group uh, other than outside a group. The 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 the, I, the the whole sort of principle of treating people as individuals is upheld by the facts. So this is this is something which shouldn't be of huge interest to anybody who isn't a um a scientist looking into this kind of of genetics or whatever but it yeah it, it's become it's become taboo and so it's become a matter that that is discussed all over the place and this kind of sort of escalation and intensifying and and clumping is it? I, I see it as I haven't quite, quite got my my finger on on how it's fully working yet. But it's uh, it, it's all working together to try and just in, intensify, solidify, and separate everything. Yeah, at the I mean, moment. I actually I actually read the bell curve when it came out, which was maybe twenty years ago now, and I honestly 
don't think from the kind of one day after reading it until, you know, a few months, uh, like a year ago when Sam's podcast came out, I gave it a second thought. Um, yeah. Um, yeah I, I actually read it a couple of years back too, before the, before the podcast. And I, yeah, that it was the same with me. I don't even think I read the whole thing. It's dry. <laughs> I, I, I sort of skimmed and, you know, and then, and then I was done and nothing happened to my, you know, personal beliefs, nothing changed. But I do think, I guess I've disagreed with you, Helen, a little bit to say mm -hmm. that it's, you know, when you, when you said that this was something that only scientists should necessarily be concerned about, I do think it should be discussed more frankly um, by, uh, philosophers and and you know people we rely on to um, explain to us uh, the virtues of equality and you know why as a society we we grant each other um, a certain base level like this this there's this, this thing that we call human dignity um, but what it means um, and how it's defined and where it comes from because I think this idea is, We've, we take it for granted um, and we've been taking it for granted for a long time. And I am concerned that as we, um, you know, as a society, we, we've, we, we get to a place where we can learn more about ourselves and our own limitations on a, on a biological level, even mm -hmm. um, like, you know, let's say I figure out that we find out that there is something biologically different about me that maybe makes me more violent than you, Helen. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what, uh, what are the implications of that um, on society as a whole? I'm, I don't know. And I don't, I, I think people should be discussing it. And I think people who, you know, who's, who's, you know, um, job it is, or people who, who really are professionals in thinking about these issues and really parsing out the different, um, the different factors at play should be discussing this right now because uh, we'll get closer and closer to a point where we're able to know these things about each other. Um, and, you know, we should, we should think now about how this should affect our laws. And if it shouldn't, then really put, make a strong defense in light of this, this new evidence. I, I, I certainly don't disagree with that. If, if we're, if, uh, you know, the, the scientists of, um, cognitive scientists um, that are, are discovering things about the way our brains work and the differences between our brains, those things should certainly be discussed. If there are solid findings of this, then yes, ethicists and um, philosophers and um, and, and uh, liberals and people, everybody needs to be able to to discuss this. But I, at the moment, the, the status of, of knowledge, as, as far as I know, is... Um, is is not anything that that presents a challenge to the idea that we treat everybody as individuals, you know. So I I don't I'm I'm not sure that sure that we disagree, and I, I certainly agree that that yes, this this is something which must not be taboo because that can only form factions and and um, sort of extreme ideas which aren't aren't actually based on a truth that could be being. Uh, I feel that you know. I I feel that ethics and science, just talking about actual science, should be um, when you put an, a scientific experiment past the ethical committee, um, past an ethical committee. Um, what they consider is um, how you're conducting the experiment. So, is the way in which you're conducting the experiment uh, going to cause unnecessary suffering to subjects? They don't ask, mm. uh, 
is this, uh, could we find out something which people could abuse? Um, those are two completely different yeah. uh, topics. And I think mm. that we have to keep, uh, there's, there's science and knowledge, and then there's what we do with that knowledge. And those two things have to be kept very uh, separate uh, in our minds. So to give us, uh, to give an example, talking about the gay rights movement used to be very focused on be, whether, whether or not uh, homosexuality was genetic. Did you, is there something that you mm. inherited? Were you born uh, gay rather than it being something that developed later? And I feel as though, um, mm. you know, however, however you might feel about genetic versus environmental influences on um, homosexuality, let's say exclusive homosexuality for the sake of simplification of the argument. Um, however you feel about that should be, I, I think it's a very, very interesting topic um, from a biological point of view. Well, I'm interested in this topic, um, but I think it's quite immaterial to how we uh, handle LGBT rights. You know, if, for example, mm. you know, in some alternative universe, you just freely chose to be gay by pressing some button when you reached a certain age, and it was absolutely completely your choice, that I would, I would defend people's mm. right to make that choice. Um, you know, because I don't see a problem with a, with but anyone being gay. So, you know, I feel that that's, yeah. No, that's a blurring of the factual and the ethical that isn't helpful. Uh, you know, and I, I think it's a, that's a very complicated question, maybe too big for us <laughs> to discuss. <laughs> we're, we're, we're ambitious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, I, I think it's it's this idea that that we to go kind of back to something I know yes. a little bit more about, <laughs> um, which is that, that there are certain things that we shouldn't discuss or shouldn't know or others shouldn't know. Um, and that's absolutely the case with um, the re reality of the Muslim world. There are, you know, everybody knows that there are few polls. Everybody who wants to know knows that there are many polls about um the social, you know, values of Muslims across across the world, um, how they feel about gay rights, how they feel about, um, you know, uh, theocracy, how they feel about political violence. I mean, there's so much out there, um, and yet we're not discussing this. Um, and yet, mm -hmm. I feel like there's this um, tendency to just ignore um, these these um, these these data and what what it can tell us. Mm -hmm. Um, which I find quite, I find it, I find it quite troubling. And even to point to it, honestly, I mean, even me, um, I do this. This is all I do. This is this is what I do. Um, there is even even I get this sense of of almost embarrassment when I when I bring bring these things up. Um, yeah. You know, I, I almost I, I don't know what where exactly that's coming from, and if the, it's maybe some sort of. Um, you know this desire not to not to touch on a very sensitive uh, subject or to bring up this ugly thing that people would prefer to ignore. Um, but in any case, I feel that way. I'm sure others feel it in a much um, stronger sense. And there's 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 so many issues um, related to that in in Europe, especially with the way that migrants have been 
um, integrating or not integrating, um, particularly um, Muslim second generation immigrants who haven't really been doing so well um, uh, when it comes to integration um, in Europe. Uh, and but these are all sort of these this embarrassing mm. reality that becomes very difficult to discuss um, by people who all mean well. Sarah, I I want yeah. to ask you. Um, why you think that there is this discrepancy between um, how second generation Muslims integrate in the US and in Europe, if you perceive there is a discrepancy, um, that as I understand it, uh, Muslim communities in the US are, I'm using that word again, communities, uh, Muslims in the US are more likely to be <laughs> well integrated, um, secular, more uh, more liberal, more relaxed, um, and in the UK, this um, this hasn't. Uh, in the UK, the opposite is the case, and yeah. I wonder uh, whether you had any ideas about why that is. What has gone wrong with in in Europe, which has gone right in the States? And this is, I mean, that's a pretty meaty topic, um, and I don't know to what extent I can. I can be a, an authority on it. I can just share where my inclinations at the moment. And the, the reason I say that I don't, I, I don't know how much I know is because I'm not an expert in on Europe. <laughs> I know a lot about America, um, uh, but I, I'm, I'm trying to educate myself on on the differences in in Europe. But I don't know to what, what extent these are just stereotypes that I I hold. So Helen, you can correct me. Um, but well, one thing that I think is uh, uncontroversial is that um, the immigration patterns are different. Um, the the reasons why um, immigrants were let into different countries they they tend to vary between the United States and other countries. Um, the U.S. seems to be more selective um, and has fewer uh, refugees um, who come in. Um, the economic migrants that came in to to the United Kingdom. Um, when when was it? Seventies, um, sixties, eighties. We we had a oh, lot of. That, okay, I thought it was before then as well. Um, but there were waves yeah. of yeah. But there were lower skilled workers. Um, if I if 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 I understand it correctly. Yeah, we we, we had um, sort of a lot of African and West Indian immigrants in the fifties and sixties, and then um, the biggest wave of South Asian in the eighties. Eh? Mm-hmm. I think some, somebody will probably now write in and, and correct me in detail on this, but that's um, the general. Yeah. Well, I, I think the, the nature of uh, who came in and when and for what purpose uh, was it is different um, when when you compare the United States and and Europe. I I also think the the reality of surviving in the United States might have something to do with it. Um, in that you really are forced to integrate. I mean, this um, metaphor of the United States as a melting pot, which I understand now is derided <laughs> in other parts of parts of the world, but we're very proud of, proud of um, that we're, you know, my Canadian friends say that we, we say we're a, we're a mosaic in Canada. The United States is a melting pot, but we are a mosaic, um, which is, it, it's an interesting, well, that's an interesting way to put it, right? And it's an interesting mm. distinction to make that we are separate uh, and we come together and we are, have our own uh, edges and we have our own, mm. you know. Um, I've heard people borders. use salad. We're not a melting pot, we're a salad. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're, we're distinct and we're different. Um, and 
and um and, and but we come together in in to form a bigger nation versus in the united states melting pot uh, metaphor you sort of affect each other you become i become like you and you become like me mm. you know we, we become something of a one whole thing that is in this that is um, inseparable really because you've become so much like me and i've become so much like you we've sort of melted into each other um so i think those those metaphors uh, explain a little bit of of my inclination as to why why there are differences um, between between the way that the United States has approached its immigrants and the way that Europe has approached its immigrants. There's also the 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 difference of uh, of the ways the countries conceive of themselves. Um, I mean, the United States was um, it's a it's um, it's a country of laws. Right, it was founded by people who were different, who did not share um, a heritage, uh, they did not share a religion, uh, who came together because they agreed on uh, certain principles. But Europe has Europe is older. Europe has um, ethnic heritages and truly uh, like legacies and and histories, shared families and shared shared histories that that um, groups of different countries, people in different countries can look back on and say, okay, we as Brits, we did X, Y, Z. We, we genuinely are uh, a tribe in a way that Americans can't really uh, conceive of themselves. Um, and I think that affects the way immigrants mm. feel um, once they come to America. I think that you can be properly American as an immigrant in a way that you might not feel like you can be um, if you're, you know, an African and you you come to um, a European country, because there's, you know, there's the people who have this heritage, and then there's you, who are kind of a new arri- arrival. But uh, Helen, I don't know if I'm if I'm wrong there. I don't know if I'm reading something that's that's just sort of, <laughs> um, you know, a, a fantasy of Americans that this is <laughs> this is who we are and how noble. <laughs> Yeah, um, no, 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 I, no. I, I, I think that yes, America as a nation of of immigrants is, um, yeah, certainly, um, sort of more feels feels probably does feel more welcoming to to immigrants. It, it's not. It is a, a such a such a different collection, and I, and I, I'd, I'd understand. Yeah, if if people um, with the UK having such a monolithic history for for so long i mean i would um say now that some of the most stereotypically british um people with their their tea drinking apologizing football playing are actually um indian brits but that's um yeah that that that's not that's not quite the same thing so i i do think that um that yeah that that what you've said There's is no a, one sort of more truth. anglophile than a parsi i have to tell you <laughs> yeah <laughs> But there's something, um, I think Ken and Malik mentioned this, and I've brought it up a couple of times because I just thought it was such an interesting idea. And I, th- I hope I'm getting it right. I think it really, I think it was from him. It might, might be someone else. But um, uh, he said uh, something about second generation immigrants. Um, uh, it was, I think it was a book on multiculturalism or an essay on multiculturalism where he talked about this idea that there are these people who are trapped between two worlds. Um, and uh, that's the that's the, the cliche that's sort of thrown around when you when people discuss second generation immigrants. Um, and he said that in, he thinks instead that they're really trapped between no worlds. Like they don't really they can't. If you're a Pakistani second generation immigrant, you're not Pakistani. 
You know mm-hmm. you're not. You know, you can just go back to Pakistan, visit it, and know that you're not like them. And they don't think you're like them either. They reject you um, as 100% one of them. They know you're not. They, they see you as, you know, a Brit or an American. And then, and then uh, you cannot fully become... Uh, British or American, partially because of you know what may be remnants of of uh, a racism or a sense that you know immigrants can never really become fully you know British or or American, uh, but also when it comes to Muslims, this tendency to isolate their communities and this desire by parents. Um, not to allow their children to become too westernized, right? I mean, that's an insult to to uh, to in Muslim communities that someone's children have become too too westernized. Um, that's a it's, it's it's a slur. Effectively, it's saying that you don't you haven't been a good parent, you haven't raised your children right. They've become immoral. They've become loose. Mm. Um, and when I was growing up in the United States, my parents are very liberal, and I've talked about this openly that they are more liberal. Again, relative to Muslims, not generally. <laughs> generally, mm. they're very, very conservative. Um, but relative to Muslims, uh, somewhat liberal. But even then, I was a little bit um, fenced off of of regular, you know, quote unquote, regular American uh, society and regular, um, you know, the kinds of things that young teenagers did all around me were not necessarily things that I could participate in. I, I could never go to a pool party because I was never allowed to wear a swimsuit or anything like a swimsuit. I wasn't allowed to wear mm-hmm. shorts. I wasn't allowed to wear, you know, you had to go into full pants and this long uh, outfit. Um, and usually some of the pools, they don't even let you go. But in any case, I was embarrassed about the whole idea. Um, so there, there's things like that you, you can't go to parties, um, too many places where, where there's too many boys. You can't go. You can't go to places where there might be any kind of drinking. My my mother at first didn't want me to go on sleepovers when she knew there were men in the house, even, even if that means like my friend's brother. <laughs> so I couldn't I didn't do these things. I didn't participate in um, these rituals that that that, you know, create America that, you know, mold you at, and, and you become, you share these experiences and you become Americans, but I couldn't have that. And there are many Muslims who can't have that. You can't, you don't have dates for prom because everybody goes to prom and maybe you go to prom, but, but you can't really have a real date. You know, you can't, not somebody who you're going to kiss at the end of the night, at least not somebody mm. you're going to dance with. Um, so there's these so many different aspects of becoming an American and having this sense of um, resonance and these shared experiences with other Americans that Muslims are kind of um, fenced off of, um, uh, you know, due to the pressures of their own community and their religion. Mm. Mm. So you were talking about your background, Sarah, and I just wanted to ask about your relationship to uh, Islam, actually, how you came to uh, leave Islam and also whether you feel that there are things that that you miss or would like to kind of retain from the from the religion or from the culture so I you know I I, I gloss over my background usually um, and that's because I personally I mean and I and I'll, I'll you know, I can speak about it a little bit because I personally don't find it very interesting to speak about um, but I um, I left earlier than many people. I left when I was fifteen or sixteen. I don't re- don't quite remember exactly when, but I I remember it being around that time, and um, 
I, it was deliberate for me. Like there was a period that, that this doesn't happen with everyone. One t- some people, they just one day realize that, oh, actually I've stopped believing. I haven't been believing in a long time. And I'm ter- and they sort of realize that they're atheists. But for me, it was um, a more active um, process because I was investigating my own faith for the first time in a very critical manner, um, having been exposed to some criticisms and um, some other facts about the world that I just, I just didn't know that changed the way that I felt about things. Like for example, I I encountered um, criticisms of, of Christianity, but by, by atheists uh, that kind of did away with some of the, um, well, the credibility that I had um, for, uh, for some of the Christian myths, which Muslims believe in as well, some of the miracles, which mm. Muslims believe in as well. So it kind of had a, an effect, an indirect effect on me reading um, atheist criticisms of, of Christianity. But also around the same time, I was thinking about deeper philosophical questions. I was thinking about where my morality comes from um, and where my reason comes from. And I started looking into, uh, you know, logical uh, proofs for God because I really wanted there to be a God um, and to see if I could reason myself into faith. Uh, but I, it, it turns out that I could not. Um, and I, I would say that I became an atheist before I became an ex-Muslim, which is to say there are a lot of specific problems with Islam, but none of them, uh, it it just so happened that I didn't come to my atheism by criticism of Islam directly, but by a deeper um, lack of faith in God. Uh, Mm. And then it was like, okay, well, I guess if I'm an atheist, there is no God, then obviously Islam isn't true. Um, so that the epistemology, um, you know, that, that how we know what is true came before the ethics um, of, of mm-hmm. what is right. And, right. And I, I, I'm very, um, and this, you can see this kind of, um, this preference reflected on almost every other position I hold. And when we talk about reform, I, we didn't actually get to it here, but um, why I think it must be that we, we have to discuss the question of whether or not the religion is true. Um, and that, that ethical discussion is far, it's, it's much more difficult to have when we don't discuss what is actually true or not true about the world. Um, but in any case, that was, that was why I left and how I, how I came to leave. I do miss, um, to go back to your original question. I, I don't, I don't think I miss much, but I do miss this fundamental, um, this, this feeling I used to have, and I can't quite explain it. I can't quite put it into words, uh, but because there was a just God, because there was this, you know, like this, this, this protective figure, um, watching over us, I was assured that there would be a good end, you know, in the end, that there would be, that we would find justice uh, in the end. So no matter what happened here, and if people even died in unjust ways or cruelty and, and or, you know, people who were themselves awful, lived wonderful lives. But in any case, but the injustices of this world uh, were ultimately, ultimately would be corrected. Uh, and now I've lost that feeling and I miss it 
because it gives me, it, I, now I have a lot more anxiety about going around, you know, um, in, in a way that I didn't. Um, and injustices in this world feel, um, are, are much, feel much more personal to me. And I feel a more personal duty to try and correct it because there is nothing else. There is no God who's going to make it all right in the end. All we have is, is what we have here. Um, so I, I feel like my personal sense of duty um, to to behave a certain way in this world, to, to live my life a certain way has changed. And I think, I don't know if I would have been an activist necessarily if I wasn't um, an atheist. Mm. Mm. Oh, that's, that's interesting. My, my, my own, um, um, yeah, I, I, was, I was a very devout Christian and I, I sort of followed this same path of, of losing the faith, not knowing what was true and that the truth coming before the ethics and yeah so i i relate to that to that a lot from a very different position Mm -hmm. fantastic shall we um shall we leave it there yes uh sarah thank you so much um you have been absolutely wonderful um so people should people who have twitter can follow you on twitter at sarah the hader um h-a-i-d-e-r and I'll add that to the show notes. And you also have uh, writing in several publications. Could you tell us where to find your writings? Um, I think most of them are on Free Inquiry, with which is um, the Council for Secular Humanism. Um, I want to write more. So, you uh, do? Kind of, yeah. I, there's there's I, this I, wonderful I, magazine that would just absolutely love <laughs> to receive your writing, oh, you know. Okay. It's, okay. Yes, it's, it's name's Ario. Do, do consider it. Um, <laughs> But uh, if they wanted to know about Ex-Muslims of North America, which is the organization for which I am executive director, um, you can go to uh, www. Actually, I think the www went away now. Now it's just exmuslims.org. Um, so just if you could plug that in and you can get to know about the organization that I work for and um, it means so much to me. Um, but I think, I think you've, got, you've got it all. Wonderful. And uh, thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Helen. Thank you, Bob. This was wonderful. Great conversation. (laughs) Yeah, great to be here. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At Ariel, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ariel and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ariel, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, Write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. 
Have a wonderful week.